0: This is ESPN New York Tonight with Larry Hardesty and Gordon Damer on 98.7 ESPN. Saturday they bounced back but only put four runs on the board. Sunday they seemed to be on their way to a series victory before their eighth inning implosion in Philadelphia handed the Phillies a 7-6 win, but the offense was good. Six runs and 11 hits um, in that loss on Sunday. And then they come home and they muster One run on three hits tonight against the Milwaukee Brewers. Two to one the final score. Uh, They get a solid pitching performance from Justin Verlander. No length or not enough length as he goes five innings. Had to really grind his way through five innings. The Brewers had men on base almost every inning Verlander was out there. Starting in the first inning when they had bases loaded and one out, Verlander pitched out of that. He gave the Mets a chance to win, but this is a Mets team that needs more than a chance to win these days, especially with its offense going the way it is. And even in, and we said this last hour, even in the bottom of the ninth inning when you're only down by a run, it, it just it felt like so much more than that. The Mets were up one nothing. And then the ninth place hitter from Milwaukee, Joey Weimer hits a 422 foot home run off of Drew Smith, who had just come into the game. It was his only inning of relief work in the sixth inning. And all of a sudden a one, nothing lead becomes a two to one deficit. It felt like it was four to one or five to one the way that the Mets offense was shut down in this game by Colin Ray. So an, another loss, a different way of losing this time. Uh, and the Mets are now 35 and 43 and, this is, and I've said this a lot lately. This now is the the low water mark of the season in terms of games below 500. Eight games below 500, and again, starting the second of June, the Mets have lost 16 of their last 21 games. So, Colin Ray for the Brewers got the start. His ERA is now 4.57. After shutting the Mets down allowing just one run over six and a third innings, Buck Showalter spoke about his lineup struggles against Ray.
1: Like always, I'll give him a lot of credit. He, uh, you know, two-seam, four-seam cutter, all of them off fastball with three different looks and uh, mixed in enough other pitches. But, you know, we'd like to see us do a better job, three hits. Kind of tough. And we pitched pretty well, all things considered. We'd like to take advantage of that, but, you know, we didn't. Anyway, kind of did what we thought coming in. Three different looks off the fastball. You know, appear as the same pitch, but there's three different movements with them. That's why you saw some, you know, some weak contact. Got off the barrel of the bat a lot.
0: Three hits, no extra base hits. She had a single for Starling Marte, a single for Francisco Lindor, and Brett Beatty had a single as well, and that was it for the Mets in this game. Uh... Verlander, like I said, five-innings pitch, shut uh, shut him out over five innings. He allowed five hits, struck out five, walked two, threw 100 pitches in those five innings. So they had to take him out. After the fifth, they had to go to the bullpen, which is always risky with this team, uh, especially after Buck Walter's handling of the bullpen in Philadelphia on Sunday where he didn't go to his high-leverage guys, uh, Robertson, et cetera, in that game against Philadelphia. Uh, this time he goes to Drew Smith. That was Drew Smith's first game back since he was suspended for 10 after he was ejected against the Yankees on the 13th of June for the sticky substances on his hands. He was the most rested pitcher in this Mets beleaguered bullpen. I don't hate the move going to Drew Smith in that spot. You've got to go somewhere, and he is one of your higher leverage guys in this bullpen. So here's Buck on Smith's outing.
1: You know, he's one pitch from uh, having a – scoreless inning. You know, he felt good physically and um just got one ball. I I haven't looked at it in depth about where and and what, but uh you know that's a. Uh, you know he'll he'll get better. You know he almost uh almost got through it. Just made a mistake. Like the fact that came back and got the next hitter out, but uh
0: Yeah their number nine hitter weimer has a lot of power. Not a high average hitter but a lot of power and he showed that by Really teeing up a fastball by Drew Smith and sending it over the center field fence. Smith threw 24 pitches to get through that sixth inning. Look at this: the Mets threw a, and a lot of this is because Verlander labored. Like I said, the Mets threw 184 pitches in this game to get through nine innings. 184 pitches. The Brewers pitchers needed 113 to get through the same nine innings. So the Mets pitchers threw 71 more pitches than Milwaukee's so this game really shouldn't have been that's why the game felt like it was not as close as it actually was because the Mets were pitching out of trouble mostly Verlander all night long and credit to him but even Adam Atavino in the seventh inning pitched around a couple of walks to keep it a two to one game but as far as Drew Smith goes uh, Buck was asked about these 20 plus pitch innings that he has had
1: no challenge for him a lot has been you know it's, it's taken him 20 pitches plus to get through innings that's not like him in the past. You know, it's just like, to, and it keeps him from pitching one another inning, pitching the next day necessarily, or two out of three. I mean, there's so many cause and effect to that stuff. You know, Rails has, you know, had, you know, he, he and Otto both kind of worked through a lot of, a lot of pitches to get to the end game. And that's, uh, and that's taxing. It affects things uh, the next day and, and what you can do even in that game. You know, like Robbie was real efficient, and if we went to the 10th inning, he potentially could have gone back out there because he didn't throw and, you know, didn't have that issue.
0: Obviously, Buck's use of the Mets' bullpen has been a topic of conversation in light of what happened in Philadelphia on Sunday when he didn't use Robertson, he didn't use Ottavino, he didn't use Rayleigh as the Mets had a 6-3 lead in the 8th inning only to cough it up and allow the Phillies to score four and route to their 7-6 win tonight trying to keep the team in the game and ultimately it did work they were down by a run and he used Rayleigh and he used Adovino and he used Robertson and the offense just couldn't get that second run or that third run so Buck was asked about his bullpen use over these last couple of games
1: no those guys weren't available yesterday and our well, we deemed them for the game on it. so they were available tonight. they weren't available yesterday so I don't know what else we could have done so that doesn't make much
0: sense all right, simple there. Explanation from Buck Showalter. Lastly, from Buck, look, a run, three hits, and we went up and down the order. Who's underperforming this season? Everybody's underperforming. You, know, you want to say Nimmo isn't? Okay, I'll give you that. But Marte is, and Lindor is, and Alonso's average is 222, and Vogelback is, and McNeil is, uh, and Canna is. So one run, three hits, eight games below 500. How do you fix this slump that the Mets are in?
1: We- it's not that complicated. You got to win, win games. You know, everything else. You know, we, I, like I said, I could bore you with a lot of things that are going on. We're, you know, just like we we got to get back to how we've shown we can play, like we have in the past. And uh, but it doesn't just because you've done something in the past, good or bad, you don't become a, a you know prisoner of that. You know things are. It's always about now. You know, heck with what happened last year, or last week, or tonight. You got it. You got to get it fixed. And. You know, it falls under the real obvious, you know, I mean, I, that's a pretty obvious answer.
0: That's the real confusing thing about this team, and that's what has everybody scratching their heads. Pat O'Keefe with you on 98.7 ESPN, New York, one 800 What has all of us scratching our heads about this team is that it's largely the same team as last year. All right, you go from DeGrom, who, by the way, isn't even pitching now because he's out for the season again with Tommy John surgery. You go from DeGrom to Verlander. Uh, but you bring Nemo back, Alonzo, McNeil, Marte, Lindor. That was the heart of the lineup last year. That's the heart of the lineup this season. And like I said, all of them are doing worse this year than last year. You're not getting the dominance at the top of the pitching rotation. Remember this time last year. You know, the jury was still out this time last year on the Mets, and I, I know their record was fantastic last year, really from the spring all the way through go back to last, you know, middle to late June where we are right now in the season, it was a Mets team that had not been to the playoffs in several years. So the jury was still out like, yes, we got this new manager and buck and we've got Alonzo and Lindor and, and these two pitchers at the top of the rotation, but I'm just not sure if they're the best team top to bottom. And and I don't think they were the best team top to bottom, but what everybody hung their hat on when trying to project what the Mets could be in the postseason was, DeGrom and Scherzer, or Scherzer and DeGrom, however you wanted to stack it, at the top of the rotation. And the question that was repeatedly asked rhetorically was, who is going to want to face those two guys in a short series? Well, this year, you can't even rhetorically ask that about the Mets, because Scherzer's not the same guy, and Verlander's not the guy that the Mets had hoped he would be. They've both been very inconsistent. They've been fine. But they haven't been dominant. So there's not even that that, you know, gives you the hope that this team could make a run or throw, you know, an eight and three stretch together or a fourteen and four stretch together and try to get back into the pennant race. I mean, think about how much work they need to do just to get into the one of the wild card spots as they sit here at 35 and 43. And by the way, 35 and 43 is their record. Last year. The Mets lost their 43rd game on August 18th, nearly two full months later in the calendar last year is when they lost their 43rd game. And here they are tonight on the 26th of June, losing their 43rd game of the season. And last year, when they lost that 43rd game, they were 76-43. and think about that they were 40 they had 41 more wins last year to go against 43 losses than their 35 and 43 record they're eight and a half games behind the third wild card spot they have to jump over seven teams to get there there's only three teams if they look over their shoulders towards the bottom of the standings in the National League there are only three teams right now that are worse than the Mets. And where are the answers? I don't know. They don't have an Aaron Judge on the injured list who's going to come back, hopefully, and try to save them. You know, they don't have their number two and number three pitchers on the injured list like the Yankees do on paper anyway, and Carlos Rodon and Nestor Cortez that you hope once they come back really bolsters the rotation. The Mets don't have anybody like that waiting in the wings. I mean, they have Edwin Diaz who's hurt, but he's not coming back this year. So he'll, he doesn't even count. And what are you going to do? You're going to throw more money at this problem? They've spent enough. They've spent enough money and it's bad money. $360 million for what? For what? Considering, if this continues, considering how much money they have spent on this roster, it could be the most poorly constructed roster in baseball history. And don't point the finger at Showalter. And I know he's getting testy now and he's under a lot of fire. And he's going to be the guy that loses his job first if this continues. He is not the problem here. He's not the problem. The reason why the expectations were so high coming into the season, the reason why Steve Cohen fell last offseason was the time to spend all that money to – set the record for highest payroll ever was because of the culture change that Buck instituted last season. And now a year later, you want him out of town. What's going to happen if you change him? Like I said, you know, you want to catch lightning in a bottle like the Phillies did last year. Okay, maybe for the Phillies, it was more than lightning in a bottle because they fired Girardi. They promoted Rob Thompson. They did catch fire right away, and then they ended up going to the World Series. So maybe that's a bad example. But what's going to happen if you fire Buck Showalter is there's a decent chance that the team will get a spark off of that and go 8-2, and two, go 9-3, and three, make things interesting, make their record a little bit more representative. But over the long term, if you jettison Buck Showalter, all you're doing is, is getting rid of the smartest and best baseball man in your organization because the guys that you are paying all this money to that have set the record for the highest payroll are not doing their jobs, and you can't get rid of them. You can't get rid of Lindor's contract. Nobody wants that, and we all knew that the day that they signed it. I know Mets fans on that opening day two years ago were thrilled because – It was more symbolic than anything. Steve Cohen was in and the Will Ponds were out and you finally had an owner who was committed to spending money. But it has to be smart money. And that wasn't smart money. You know, the Scherzer deal, I can't kill it. The Scherzer deal is kind of what got the Mets to where they were last year. You know, we spent six months. Minus the final weekend last year, talking about Scherzer and DeGrom, this is the team that nobody's going to want to face in the playoffs. They're going to win a short series, whether it's the wild card, whether it's the best of five in the NLDS, whether it's the best of seven in the NLCS, Scherzer and DeGrom. Well, you don't get that unless you spend that money. So I'm not going to sit here and say that every single move that he made, all of these contracts that he signed were bad ones, but the Lindor one was a bad one. And you haven't even played. You, excuse me, paid. You haven't even paid your most reliable guy in the lineup yet. You're gonna have to pay Alonzo at some point. He's your guy. He's your leader. He's your star. And you got this payroll that's leading to nothing, and you're not even paying your star yet. I mean, it it's, has the potential to get worse before it gets better. Now, historically, if you're in a really bad situation, you have the ability or the potential to buy your way out of that situation. But that just goes back to the examples I just gave. Who has faith that this group, whether it's Billy Epler, Steve Cohen, whoever's making all of these decisions, who has faith that they're going to make the right decisions if they decide to spend more money on this? Because they have spent a ton of money already and it has gotten them to a place where they're better than only the Cardinals and the Nationals and the Colorado Rockies in the National League disaster disaster they play again tomorrow see if they can turn it around how many times have we said that lately it's Pat O'Keefe on 98.7 ESPN New York this is ESPN New York tonight with Larry Hardesty and Gordon Damer on 98.7 ESPN It's also brought to you by Patron Tequila, Stoli Vodka, Bed MGM, All-American Auto Group, Calandra's Bakery, Smart Water, and Flight by Yingling. You must be at least 21 years of age to enter. Pat O'Keefe with you till the top of the hour. I want to touch on this story from Mike Florio on Pro Football Talk that says the Jets are bracing for their team— to be the subject of hard knocks during this upcoming NFL training camp. The Jets apparently uh, publicly and privately have made their feelings known that they do not want to be the focal point of this year's show. But the NFL several years ago has kind of developed a formula that narrows down the list of teams that are eligible And this year, the list includes the Jets, the Saints, the Bears, and the Commanders. Basically, what has to happen is uh, they won't do it with a team that has a new head coach. And Robert Sala, not a new head coach for the Jets. Uh, Teams that have not been to the playoffs in either of the last two years are also eligible. So clearly, the Jets are eligible under that criteria and then some and also teams that have not been the subject of the show for the last 10 years now this is obviously um you know bias around here for me but the best episode of hard knocks was the year 10 i think it was 11 years ago now when the jets were featured and it was rex ryan as the head coach and that was a big reason why uh it was so entertaining bart scott was on that jets team um that was the, the the best season of hard knocks and i think a lot of people even outside of new york will say that but Look, it's a no-brainer for the NFL if the Jets are one of four teams. And apparently, uh, interestingly, the Jets, the Saints, and the Bears, none of them want to do the show this year. All right? Uh, The Commanders apparently would do it if they're assigned. But according to this article by Mike Florio, uh, the league wants to wait until after the sale of the Commanders is finalized. But the problem with waiting for that is there's a decent chance that Ron Rivera gets fired uh, before next season begins, which would take them out of the running for next season. But as far as the Jets go, um, when you're deciding between the Jets and Aaron Rodgers, the Saints and um, Derek Carr and the Bears and Justin Fields, it's it is kind of a no brainer which team would draw the most eyeballs. So it sounds like the Jets, like like the article says, are bracing for the assignment. They don't want the assignment, but it is out of their control, largely. Uh, I think it'll be exciting, and it will add more excitement to uh, the upcoming season around here. And there's already plenty of it. Um, you hear all the promos on our station, obviously. Aaron Rodgers uh, and, and the Jets and 987 ESPN New York, the home of the New York Jets uh, during the regular season, and maybe during the postseason this year. So, you know, is that going to negatively affect the team? I don't. I don't know. Um, I don't know that there's a long history. Even the year that the Jets were featured in, Rex was so bombastic. And I remember the first game of that season, John Gruden was doing the Monday night game uh, as the color analyst. And every time the Jets were hit hard, I forget who they were playing. Maybe it was Denver or Oakland, whoever they were playing that opening game. Gruden was having fun with them because the Jets played terribly Gruden thought that they were uh, a little too big for their britches based on the hard knocks. And every time the jets would get hit, you heard Gruden go, that was a hard knock. Oh, there was a hard knock right there. Um, but the jets ended up going to the, uh, AFC championship game again that season for the second straight year. So did it negatively impact them the last time? I don't think it will. And I also don't think Aaron Rodgers has ever been on hard knocks, which would be interesting. Um, you know, Rodgers hasn't been shy about being out in the public. Um, sharing his opinions, sharing his thoughts. He's never been shy throughout the course of his career, but this will be kind of a whole new way uh, to look at him or to to consume what Aaron Rodgers is all about. So... You know, as somebody who doesn't really have a, a a dog in the fight, I'm all for it. Bring on the Jets. The last time they were the subject of Hard Knocks, it was their best season ever, and hopefully we get a repeat in 2023 with some compelling personalities and maybe even some new big names added to the roster. We'll have more on that as we continue here on 987 ESPN New York. This is ESPN New York tonight with Larry Hardesty and Gordon Damer. On 98.7 ESPN. Jordan Poole on the Washington Wizards. Uh, Poole was outstanding in the Warriors' most recent NBA championship season last year. This year started with him getting punched in the face by a teammate in video that was pretty graphic that we all saw after it was leaked. And he was never the same player for that team. And you just watched Jordan Poole in the playoffs this last season, and he looked absolutely lost on the floor. And the Warriors had already committed uh, over hundred million dollars to him, and it just looked like a sunk cost. So the fact that they were able to get off of that, bring in Chris Paul now, Chris Paul's kind of like Mr. Chris Paul's kind of like Mr. Quick Fix um, these days in the NBA. And a friend of mine pointed this out to me, uh, Chris Paul over his last eight seasons. Now, you know, the point god and all that, he's he's a great point guard. He's an all-time great point guard. And I I think that's the first time in my life I ever actually uttered the words point god. And I was rolling my eyes when I did so in case you can't see me, which you can't. Uh, I always thought that was a little silly to – first of all, I think it's silly to uh, give anyone (laughs) the nickname of God. That's just me. Uh, Secondly, I think it's silly to give someone the nickname of God when they were only able to get their team to the NBA Finals once in their entire career and weren't even the best team when you did go to the NBA Finals. But he's an all-time great point guard. We know that. But over his last eight seasons, as it was pointed out to me, uh, he has now been on five teams. Now, here's the thing. Those teams are always good. You know, he he was on the Clippers, and then they sent him to the Rockets, And then he and James Harden teamed up. They won 65 games together. Harden was the MVP. Uh, Some people say that they would have beaten the Warriors in a playoff series if Paul didn't hurt his hamstring at the end of game six. I don't necessarily believe it was a done deal that they would have won if Paul stayed healthy. Uh, I still think the Warriors would have won that series, but they gave them a run. And then he and James Harden had a falling out, and they shipped him to Oklahoma City in a salary dump. And he rejuvenated his career in Oklahoma City. I think he helped Shea Gilgis Alexander to start developing into the uh, all-star level player that he is. And he was there for one year. It was the season that ended in the NBA bubble. And then Oklahoma City spun him off to Phoenix. He brought the Suns, helped bring the Suns to the NBA Finals. Had a 2-0 lead in the Finals. Lost the last four games to Milwaukee. Milwaukee. The next year, they were the best team in the regular season in the NBA before flaming out in the second round to the Dallas Mavericks. This year, he couldn't stay healthy, and now he's gone to his fifth team in his last eight seasons, the Golden State Warriors. And this is really, he's 38 years old, so if if he's going to get a ring, this is his last chance to do so. But Chris Paul always makes teams better in the interim, and then you know he wears on them and he wears out his welcome and it's time for him to move on and that's how you get to play for five teams in the last eight seasons so that's gonna be interesting um and then you have the knicks and and I've been on the record a couple of times by saying this about the knicks you you can't run it back with the same the same group and expect a better result. It's just not how especially with everything that's going on um In the Eastern Conference and and around the NBA as a whole, but specifically in the Eastern Conference. You know, Miami's not going to stand pat. That's not their M.O. Boston has already added Chris Depp's Porzingis, who, if he stays healthy, can make them a different team anyway. A better team? I don't know about that. Um, Chris Depp's Porzingis has never in his entire NBA career been someone who has positively impacted winning. Ever. He was... Uh, The only time he ever played uh, on a playoff-level team was when he was riding Luka Doncic's coattails in Dallas, and it quickly became apparent that Porzingis wasn't the kind of guy who elevated his game in the postseason. Now, if you put him on a Boston team that has more star power, you know, you've got Tatum and you've got Jalen Brown— You've got Derek White. You've got more options ahead of Porzingis. And if you don't ask him to do as much, can he be more effective? Perhaps. But my point is, from the Knicks' perspective, you can't run it back with the same nine guys. You know, the nine-man rotation when everyone was healthy last year of Brunson and Grimes and RJ and Julius and Mitchell Robinson with Josh Hart coming off the bench and quickly coming off the bench and Obi Toppin coming off the bench and Isaiah Hartenstein— that was the group for the Knicks last season. If that's the group for the Knicks this season, they're not going to take another step. And now they're so close. They're they're so close to taking a step towards... And the next step is an exciting step. It's towards the conference finals. Now, they can improve their roster, and they can make a move or two and get better and still not get to that level. But I I don't think they're going to continue moving in that positive direction if they run it back with the same group. So so, so, where did the moves come from? You know, obviously you hear a lot about Obi Toppin in the last week and um, multiple reports, one in The Athletic, that he's not happy with his role, uh, a shouting match allegedly uh, during the playoff series against Miami between Toppin and Tom Thibodeau. I mean, look, Toppin, should he be happy with his role on the Knicks? No, he shouldn't. And it's not, enti- it's not his fault, and it's not entirely the Knicks' fault. I mean, Toppin was the national player of the year. The Knicks, he didn't get a chance to shine in the NCAA tournament with Dayton when they would have been a number one or a number two seed because the NCAA tournament was canceled because of COVID. And then he goes into the draft, and the Knicks picked him at number eight. And unfortunately for Toppin, he's always going to be remembered by Knicks fans as the guy who they picked when they could have picked Tyrese Halliburton. It was funny because now it's not that big of a deal, right? Because the Knicks have their point guard that they have been looking for for 30 years in Jalen Brunson. The Knicks had a chance to pick Tyrese Halliburton, who before he got hurt last year was leading the NBA in assists. Instead, they picked Obi Toppin. All right, so that's what Toppin, I think, ultimately, his legacy is going to be, the guy they picked instead of picking Tyrese Halliburton. But if he's not happy with his role, He has every right to not be happy with his role. He was the eighth pick in the draft, and in three seasons he has started 15 games. And he has played less than 15 minutes per game in his career so far. Now, it's unfortunate for Toppin because a lot of it is circumstances that were out of his control. Toppin came into the NBA the exact same season when – The guy who plays his same position on the Knicks roster, Julius Randle, who happened to be their highest paid player. Toppin's rookie season was the year it finally clicked for Randle. And Randle finally became the all-star player that everyone thought he had the potential to be, but had not yet been in the first seven years of his career. But that coincided with Toppin's entrance into the league. So what was Tom Thibodeau supposed to do? Play Randall less? Randall had just become an all-star and an all-NBA performer. And then this year, the same thing. It's Toppin's third year. He finished last year getting an opportunity to start, putting up some big numbers in games that, let's be honest, did not have a ton of meaning. But he still put up some big numbers and maybe brought some momentum into this season. But then Julius Randle has another all NBA level season and another all star season. And Toppin is still stuck in stuck in the mud, running in place, not being allowed. The opportunity to increase his role. So you look at that spot as a spot that can be upgraded for the Knicks and upgraded. What do I mean by upgraded? Well, the one thing the Knicks were severely lacking last year was outside shooting. And and Brunson, by the end of the year, was 40% from downtown. Uh, and he's not a guy who was known as a knockdown shooter throughout his career. He ended up being the Knicks' best outside shooter last season. But if you look at the, the nine-man group for the Knicks, the nine guys that were in their rotation in the playoffs, who would you consider above-average three-point shooters of those nine? Brunson. I would consider Quickly above-average three-point shooter and probably Quentin Grimes, and that's it. And and in the cases of Quickly and Quentin Grimes, statistically, they might not even be above-average yet. But if they are above-average, they're barely above-average. So this is a group that they became defendable because you didn't have to get out on Randall. You didn't have to get out on R.J. Barrett. You didn't have to get out on Obi Toppin. You didn't have to get out on Josh Hart. And to be honest with you, in the playoffs, you didn't have to get out on anybody because the three-point shooting in the playoffs, and this this tends to happen, especially you play a superb defensive team like the Miami Heat, but the three-point shooting numbers for the Knicks in the Heat series were deplorable. Brunson was 32%. Well, this is actually for the whole playoffs. Brunson was 32% on threes, Quickly was 24%, and so was Quentin Grimes. And actually, Knicks fans who love to rag on this guy are going to love this. The Knicks leader among rotation players in the postseason, the Knicks leader in three-point percentage, it was R.J. Barrett at 32.8%. So that just shows that you need help in that area. So who's available? What free agents? If you saw Fred Katz's article in The Athletic, he threw out a list of 10 names that the Knicks could potentially get on the mid-level exemption. Some of the names I like, some of the names I don't. And I've just whittled it down to the names of guys who can shoot. Because if you're going to replace Toppin, you have to replace him with a shooter. Because you're going to lose something in terms of athleticism because he's an extremely athletic player. You're going to lose something in terms of running the floor and getting out in transition. But again, if you're only playing the guy for 15 minutes a game, you're not losing that much in those areas because he's not doing it for long enough. But Toppin's not a great three-point shooter. He's gotten a lot better. But some of the names that were mentioned, Kendrick Nunn and Seth Curry, those guys are too small. The Knicks have enough... You know, Jalen Brunson's and Emmanuel Quickley's, they have enough small guards. You don't need to add another one, even though those guys are good shooters. Curry, Seth Curry, is a great shooter. You know, a Joe Ingles, a George Niang, a Dante DiVincenzo. Are those upgrades over Obi Toppin in terms of shooting? They are. You know, another name that was mentioned from the Brooklyn Nets, Utah Watanabe. His three-point shooting numbers were great last year. He's not a good player. His three-point shooting numbers were great because he spent the first half of his season playing with Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving in Brooklyn when they were both being double-teamed, and that guy just camped out outside and was wide open and knocked down that sweet lefty jumper. That's not going to happen on the Knicks or any other team. So if you're looking to upgrade the Knicks, those are the names that you need to potentially be looking at. Uh, Joe Ingles, I don't love that fit at this stage in his career with his injury history. George Niang is a guy who's had some big games against the Knicks and could be interesting, and he consistently shoots above 40% from downtown. And Dante DiVincenzo, you can kind of get a little bit. Now, he's not as big uh, as Toppin, uh, so you're going to lose something in the size department, but a very good three-point shooter, and he does have some of that athleticism. But you can't run back the same nine-man rotation next year and expect to move forward with this team. And that's the challenge for the Knicks now that the draft is done, even though the Knicks didn't have a draft pick, now that we're in the midst of the trade season and with free agency right around the corner. That's the challenge for the Knicks, and it's a different challenge than they have had in a very long time. Take a team that was a step away from the conference finals – And make them better. Because once you get to this level, there's not as much room for you to get better. Now, there's still plenty of room for the Knicks to get better. But there's not as many moves available to you to improve your team. So, is this going to be like the last time the Knicks went to the second round of the playoffs in 2013? And then they lost to Indiana. And then we didn't see them in the playoffs again for the next seven years. Or was last year a stepping stone to a longer period of playoff basketball, dare I say, a conference finals appearance. Dare I, dare I say, an NBA finals appearance. Look, they're they're one round away from reaching the conference finals. And a lot of people tell you they should have won that series against the Heat last year. I mean, the Heat were an eight seed and the Knicks played them well during the regular season. They didn't. They didn't take advantage of that opportunity. But we'll see how they can improve that team this offseason.